From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Tuesday, October the 27th, 2020, and we have a good full show lined up for you this morning. We're going to be speaking first off with uh, Vermont's senior senator, Patrick Lee. He, of course, is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee and sat through the hearings that uh, led to the confirmation uh, yesterday of uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett as the newest Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Leahy, of course, I think we all know, is unhappy about these developments. We'll find out why, and we'll find out from him what he thinks they might mean for the uh, for the future of the Supreme Court in the next uh, years and maybe decades. And... Uh, so that should be an interesting lead-off of the show. And then following that, we're going to be uh, catching up with uh, Katie Jickling. She's uh, the healthcare reporter with vtdigger.org, and uh, Katie's going to be talking to us uh, some about what the heck is going on with the COVID crisis uh, here in Vermont. In, in particular, Vermont, of course, has been uh, a relatively successful state, uh, certainly compared to other states, in trying to keep a lid on the spread of the coronavirus. But... Uh, we uh, we still have a battle on our hands, apparently, and we're going to be catching up with uh, Ms. Jickling about all of that. Uh, later on in the second hour of the program, um, we'll be uh, speaking with some student journalists at the University of Vermont, uh, these young people who are uh, part of something they call the Community News Service are going to be talking to us about uh, vote tracking efforts they've been doing so far. They've actually uh, come up with a ranking of, I believe, of uh, of the towns in Vermont that have been most, uh, where, where advanced voting, early voting, mail-in voting, et cetera, have been most popular, those where maybe that are, are not getting used to this uh, relatively new idea for a lot of people yet. And as well, they're going to be talking to us about the... Um, the phenomenon in Vermont and Maine in the District of Columbia, the only three jurisdictions in the United States where inmates, actual uh, in, currently incarcerated folks, are allowed to vote. What is going on in Vermont's prisons? How are they doing in terms of early voting and so on? So we will uh, be catching up uh, with those uh, young people on all of that in the second hour of the program this morning. I believe we have a caller on the line already. Is that right? <laughs> yes, you do. And uh, who? I'm sorry, <laughs> I missed the name in the home. Peter from Peter from Barry. Peter, and, good morning. Uh, yeah, good morning. I, you know, I just wonder if if uh, President Trump shot himself in the foot last night because um, all of the many of the uh, evangelical and religious right who voted for Trump did it holding their nose and pulling the lever. You know. They didn't really like him particularly, but, you mm-hmm. know, they pulled the lever because he was going to get those uh, judges in there. So when yep. he's finally got the judges in there, they really don't need him anymore. Hmm. Uh, oh. Victory is yeah. the, theirs. They can go home now. Is that the idea? <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> I, well, you know, it uh, just occurred to me that he may have he made a, a huge mistake. <laughs> interesting thought uh, there, no, Peter. No. Hey, yeah, yeah. Well, l- All right. listen, I, I got to jump because I got uh, Senator Leahy on the other line, so yep. I'm going to do Thanks that. Thanks for but... taking my call, buddy. Yep. Oh, Bye-bye. sure. Thank you. Hey, let's go to uh, Senator Patrick Leahy, who joins us on the phone this morning, I believe, from Washington. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am well, thank you. I hope you are. Uh, well as well, so there we go. Hey, um, although, my, although my sister Mary tells me that the, she saw snow up in Marshfield, 
uh, yesterday, but not today. Yep, we did have a dusting of snow yesterday, and, uh, well, you know, it's the time of year, so I'm glad I got my snow tires on the other day. Anyway, uh, obviously the big news is the uh, confirmation by the uh, United States Senate uh, yesterday to uh, for the uh, for the nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to uh, uh, a seat on the United States Supreme Court. I read your remarks that you delivered in, uh, in explaining your vote against this uh Against this nomination, and uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about what you told them. Well, I one I thought the idea that they were trying to ram through a Supreme Court justice uh, e- even before uh, Justice Ginsburg had been buried. I mean, they announced her even before that, and uh, so rushed that they had a open announcement at the. White House, and then several people came down with COVID as a result of the uh, of the event. It's mm-hmm. all it's all been done so politically. And remember, this the same Republican Party that stopped uh, Merrick Garland, whom everybody agreed to be a good moderate choice, stopped him for nine or ten months, and then they're trying to. Uh, put somebody through in in uh, nine or ten days. It just made no sense whatsoever. But what what worries me is that uh, this is uh, this is a a case where it's going to hurt the Supreme Court. It's going to hurt it for generations to come, and. Uh, I, I don't know how, how you turn it back. Here, Mitch McConnell has made it a point to politicize the federal courts from the uh, district courts or the courts of appeals and especially to the Supreme Court. Now, I I know in Vermont when I was practicing law and then later state's attorney, I tried cases in all our courts at the, the local level, county level, uh, the Vermont Supreme Court, and I tried cases in all the federal courts and uh, district courts, courts of appeal, even had one that went to the Supreme Court. In every single case, I never thought about, well, what's the politics of the judge up there? I figured they'd all be fair. They would treat it based on the case, based on the law, based on the facts. Now, what you're saying is, you better fit a certain political ideology when you go before that court, or you might not make it. And that, I think, hurts the, certainly hurts the federal court, which was always thought of as the uh, crown jewel of courts, actually, for the whole world. And people are not going to feel that way anymore. The court's legitimacy is going to be hurting. Do you think there's any chance? I mean, certainly uh, expectations are that uh, Amy Coney Barrett is a conservative and will rule uh, in 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 ways that are favored by conservatives, Republicans, uh, in in the coming uh, years and decades. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, you you see uh, you see defense lawyers become judges, and they don't automatically always rule for the defense. You see prosecutors become judges; they don't automatically rule for the state uh, because they have taken on a new role and are wearing a new hat and are uh, have new professional and ethical duties. Uh, can any of that come into play here? Well, I would hope that it might. 
I would hope that it might, but uh, the concern here is that so many of these judges have been rushed through. Um, keep in mind that Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, refuses to bring up, has refused since June to bring up any kind of real legislation to deal with COVID or the people who are out of work or the businesses that are closed or the schools are having difficulty opening or the hospitals don't have equipment. He won't bring that up because he's ramming through judges that have been carefully selected by the Federalist Society, by the Koch brothers and others. And I don't think they'd be making that kind of effort if they didn't have a pretty clear idea how these people might rule later on. And that's that's what worries me the most. But it also worries me that when the president says, I've got to get her on the court before the Affordable Care Act comes up in a couple of weeks because I need her I need her to vote to do away with the Affordable Care Act. I have to get her on the court before the election because if the election is contested in the courts, I need her uh, to protect me. I have never, ever, uh, in the history books, or certainly since I've been uh, in the Senate, heard any president say, I need a Supreme Court justice to do to protect me, to do what I want. And of course, with Donald Trump, so much of this is all about him. I would gather that you were one of those, I don't recall exactly, but I'm, I'm sure this is the case, that you uh, would have preferred her to say that I will recuse myself from any matter related to the 2020 election because of the uh, the nature of my appointment and the uh, and the timing here and all the rest of it. Uh, uh, she did not do that. She basically, uh, from what I understand, uh, said that uh, she will not recuse herself and would participate in decisions here. What do you think about all that? I went through and found that there were a hundred questions she was asked in the hearings. She did not re, uh, respond to. She had another 150 more written questions. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't even restate uh, sound law. Uh, that that bothered me. Uh, about the only thing she would say is she thought there's a constitutional right for felons to have uh, certain felons to have guns uh, but they don't have any constitutional right to vote which was rather surprising even to the most conservative members of the um, judiciary committee but you know when you ask a question here's one that really bothered me I, I thought I'd throw a softball question I said, would you agree that no president is above the law? Well, I'd have to look at the matter if it came before me. Now, wait a minute. Uh, The constitutional basis in our country is that no person is above the law. I'm not, you're not, and a president is not. And to hedge on that one, the eyebrows went up around the uh, hearing room. You know, that's an interesting point you make about that. Uh, it's sort of an old standard of American uh, jurisprudence and civic life that no person is above the law. Uh, I remember, um, oh, about a year or so ago, thinking during the the, the uh, round of uh, debates among all the Democratic candid- primary candidates, you know, a couple dozen or whatever, and I wondered, I, I kind of wish that the moderators of those debates would ask the question, 
if you are elected president, would you urge, urge the Congress to pass and would you sign legislation that would essentially n- make null and void this famous OLC memo from the Justice Department's o- Office of Legal Counsel that says that a sitting president cannot be uh, prosecuted uh, and uh, I mean that, that that seems like that would go to that question there. What do you think about that? Should should the uh, should that OLC um, memo be uh, be essentially reversed? I think it has to certainly be revised, if not reversed. Obviously, you don't want uh, frivolous suits or prosecutions against a president, but. Uh, the fact that to say something that says the president's above the law, uh, no, I, I can't accept that. I mean, what if uh, what if the president ordered the assassination of uh, one of his political rivals? Could you say he couldn't be arrested? Of course he could. And I think that the, the OLC, especially with this politicized uh, Department of Justice, has to be uh, has to be looked at again. The, but the thing is, we've always assumed that the Department of Justice would stay out of politics, like the, um, the Secretary of State should, that they, they'll carry out policies for this country, but they never get involved in partisan politics. Then you have uh, Pompeo going to Israel and doing things for uh, political event for the uh, Republican Party. You have Barr involved with the uh, photo op of the president so he could go and hold a Bible in front of a church, even though they had to clear the way with tear gas, troops, and everything else. Uh, this is a, a man who probably goes to church once or twice a year and then only for a photo op. Uh, the Attorney General of the United States should not be involved in that kind of politics. Senator, we have a listener who's calling in. I believe it's Don from Elmore. Uh, good morning, Don. Good morning to the both of you. I have one point and then a question. And my point is that you referred to it as the Supreme Court, and I'm going to suggest that it has not been the Supreme Court since the Citizens United case was heard. And I wish that Congress would get together and start an amendment to reverse that doggone decision forever. Uh, but my my real question is, Senator Leahy, as I understand it, there was not a quorum in the Judiciary Committee that approved uh, Amy Comey Barrett. And that does that not make it an illegal approval when there was no quorum present uh, because the Democrats all stayed away? And correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's my understanding of it. But if there was no quorum and a rule was violated, is that a grounds for bringing a court case to say that she's an illegal justice and having her off? No, you asked you ask a good question. It did mean that the Judiciary Committee rules were breached. Uh, but, but keep in mind that... Are we getting some feedback here? Sounds like a deal. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, the rules were breached, and, but they've been doing this constantly all year long. And uh, McConnell, the majority leader who should be enforcing those rules, goes along with breaching the rules. 
uh, I don't think it would raise a constitutional issue as to her um, standing because she eventually had the vote on the Senate floor, again, breaking breaking rules. Somebody may uh, attack that, but the point that we should look at is that the Senate, which should be the conscience of the nation, broke its own rules, just as the Republican leader, Mr. McConnell, had uh, lied about having a Supreme Court justice uh, heard in the election year. That, that's when he blocked President Obama from bringing up uh, 10 months before the election a nominee, but he's perfectly willing to bring up one 10 days before uh, the election when it's a Republican. Uh, Lindsey Graham, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, stated over and over again, they've had him on television and everything else, that he would never bring up a, a judicial nomination for the Supreme Court this close to a presidential election. And, of course, he did. The, the fact is, in the Senate, you assume people keep their word. They did not. That's, that is going to damage for years the U.S. Senate, the integrity of it, but it also damages the integrity of the courts. The, uh, I think it damages the, the view of this country around the world, which is what concerns me as well. And I thank you very much for your, for your thoughts on this. No, I, I, I thank you. I, I have, you know, I sometimes, in the middle of this, go to pleasant memories. One is when I was a child growing up in Montpelier, we had a camp on Lake Elmore. And that was some of the happiest time of our lives when my sister and brother and I and our parents could be there in, in Elmore. But that, that digresses from the reality of today. Uh, I am very concerned. I talk with uh, leaders from around the world that I've met and these interparliamentary groups and all, and from the right to the left, they all say the same thing. What is going on in your country? I mean, the president comes in and says, oh, maybe we should get rid of part of NATO. Has he ever read a history book? Does he realize, would he rather be, be facing an, an empowered Russia uh, with a uh, ununited Europe or have NATO, which is a check and balance. I mean, it, uh, American leadership is failing poorly. Uh, Senator I, I Leahy. I argue that, and the funny part about that is you mentioned Europeans and so forth and the Russians. Uh, I've traveled quite a bit in both Russia and Ukraine, and I find in both countries that people love Americans. They love things that are American, but they think we're nuts for the people we put in office. Well, in Russia, we could say the same thing. I think Ukraine is doing a little bit better, but, but that's my point. You're absolutely right. All over Eastern Europe, it doesn't matter when you're in which Soviet, former Soviet bloc country you're in. That's what you hear, and I hear it in Germany and Austria as well. Thank you very much, Senator. Thank you. It's interesting. My ancestors emigrated to Vermont on my father's side from Ireland in the 1800s and my mother's side from Italy. A lot of my cousins and relatives and whatnot are in Italy, and I, I visit them, and we'll have, we'll have dinner, <coughs> and everybody's being very polite, and it'll be after the second round of wine. Patricio, what is going on in your country? <laughs> <laughs> 
Senator, uh, uh, got another uh, listener checking in with us. I believe John's on the line. Good morning, John. Hello. Hi, is John there? Yes, you get, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I got a question or two for uh, Senator Leahy. Uh, okay. Uh, Senator, do you believe that uh, Amy Comey Barrett is qualified uh, to be on the Supreme Court? I don't know, because she would not answer any of the basic questions that other uh, Supreme Court nominees have, have been asked. And when she says that she can't even answer whether uh, a president has to obey the law or not, that worries me. Well, didn't Ruth Bader Ginsburg also? Uh, no, uh, actually, uh, Justice Ginsburg answered a whole lot of questions, and but she also had a she also had a statement that uh, you didn't have to answer questions that might be pertaining to future court cases. Well, absolutely, and nobody disagrees with that. But when asked the question whether uh, you're above the law, I'm above the law, a member of the Supreme Court is above the law, or the president is above the law, when she's asked questions like that. Gave very emphatic answers. Uh, I think I, I, I think you should worry. We should all worry if any member of the Supreme Court is unable to answer whether a president <coughs> is above the law or not. Okay. My next question is: uh, uh, Joe Biden is elected. Are you going to go after him as much as you've done after uh, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump, for uh, all his controversies with his family, uh, all the uh, all the, the accusations of uh, his family, the money they've taken from China and Ukraine. This is breaking up terribly at this end. John, I'm afraid we have a really bad connection with you. Um, uh, and let, me, let me get it to you. Listen to, let me get my phone closer. Can you hear me now? Yes. I hear you now, I, yes. Uh, are you going after Joe Biden if he gets elected like you've gone after Trump for four years uh, with all the accusations that have been made about his family and the money he's taken from uh, Ukraine and, and Russia and China? And what do you think about his stand on China? You know, he's pretty cozy to China, and I think they're the biggest threat to our country. And you can answer that. And the last question I have for you. Can, can, how many more I, years? How many more years are you going to run? You've been there okay. forever. You're sort of like Joe Biden. You've been there forever and done nothing. Well, okay, John. I, you know, Vermont. Uh, I, I did bring a billion and a half dollars uh, to Vermont for COVID relief that they would not have had if it was not for the uh, Leahy amendment. I do try to get some things done for my native state, but on on the question of Joe Biden, as you know a very partisan Republican in the Senate uh, did a long, long investigation of that, subpoenaed dozens of people, spent a great deal amount of the taxpayers' dollars doing it, and when he finished, he said, oh, uh, there's nothing there. And I think that's something we should understand. Was there Russian interference in our elections? Yes. And as President uh, uh, Trump showed an unwillingness to uh, object to Russia no matter what they do in spying on us and using electronic warfare against us? No, he refuses to. That bothers me a lot. I've heard uh, uh, Joe Biden being very, very critical of the Chinese 
in areas where they have not agreed to trade agreements, not agreed to the uh, things that uh, President Trump has praised them for. And so I, I think you got two different things here. I mean, it sort of comes back to this whole question where the uh, uh, President Trump faces enormous questions about the uh, money he's owed to foreign banks, uh, money in bank accounts in China, Russia, and so forth, and uh, where he's going to go now. That's not a partisan issue. That's a um, cut and dried issue. But that's why we have elections. That's why the American people will decide which one they want as president. I'm supporting. I'm supporting uh, Joe Biden. Uh, I'm supporting the uh, uh, that ticket. I, I look at some of the people we have in Vermont, like Molly Gray, who are extremely good, bright, up-and-coming uh, people in our state and should be elected. But each one of us has to make a decision who they want. If the question is, uh, do you want a president who even the most objective press points out that he's lied uh, a couple thousand times as he's campaigned, or do you want Joe Biden? I'll go with Joe. Senator, I, I got one last uh, couple of questions for you, maybe. One is, uh, uh, if the Democrats uh, take control of the Senate and they win the White House and sort of have a chance, should they consider packing uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, adding justices to try to uh, to try to uh, address the, uh, the the fact that, right, as things stand now, the conservatives will have a six-three majority on the Supreme Court? Well, I've, I've heard a number of different things that could be done. One is to uh, <clears throat> provide justices with 18-year terms on the court and then rotate them to the circuit court. That would mean there'd be two, at least two vacancies every four years, and that would uh, that would be, be something worth considering because every president, Republican or Democrat, would have at least uh, uh, two vacancies. Whether that can be done without a constitutional amendment or not, I don't know. I've asked the legal team to take a look at that and, and give me an answer. Uh, Joe Biden says that he wants to do a bipartisan commission to sit down there and look at this and give us uh, some answers. We, we've changed the makeup of the court several times over the years, but not for well over 100 years, and yeah. uh, I would be I would be hesitant to do anything without some real clear understanding. What I want the, uh, Joe Biden to do if he becomes president is to address immediately the problem of COVID. I mean, uh, President Trump said it'd be gone last spring. Well, we're still seeing a resurgence on it. I think we can, we can look at all the mistakes made by this administration, but let's correct them. Let's not talk about the mistakes of the past. Let's correct them for the future. Senator, I'm afraid we're about out of time. I really thank you for uh, joining us this morning and sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Let's go to uh, some CBS News at the bottom of the hour. A couple of words from our sponsors. We'll be back, and uh, Katie Jickling of VT Digger will be joining us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. 
The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back into the second half hour of our program on this uh, October 27th, Tuesday morning. And we're going to be talking with Katie Jickling, a healthcare writer with vtdigger.org momentarily. But first, I want to uh, get a uh, caller on the line who's been patiently waiting since before the break. Uh, let's go to Fred in Newbury. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Hey, Dave, this is an observation. Every time you have a senator or a representative on, they don't give the callers a chance to ask a question because these guys talk too much. I mean, when Leahy was on, I think he got maybe three calls in a half an hour. All this guy mm-hmm. wanted to do was to talk. All he wanted to do was talk about how great he is. I mean, this is a, this is a call-in show. Not a, I mean, that, you know, why did they do it? Is there anything you can help us with? Well, I, you know, I did get most of the calls that came in on the air. I didn't get all of them, but, uh, uh, I think the one hanging out there, uh, till after the break was yours, unfortunately. Sorry about that. But, um, I also, uh, you know, do, uh, do get you on the air a lot, Fred, probably more than any other caller. Yeah, I know. So I'm not, I'm not, no, I'm not arguing about that. I'm not arguing about that. Uh-huh. I know. I mean, I, it's, this is not about you. So that you do a great job. Okay, well, um, you know, and, and, and I guess, um, there, there was a lot of ground to cover with Senator Leahy. Obviously, you know, he was talking about any number of topics, uh, but of course the big one being the Supreme Court, uh, uh, change that came yesterday. And, um, so, uh, wanted, I did want to get in that last question about, uh, uh, this talk of court packing that, uh, that the Democrats might try. Um, I wanted to hear from him if he, if he thought that would be a good idea. And um, so, you know, that's the way it went. But uh, there you go. Uh, did you have anything yeah. else? Uh, what, what did what did you want to ask him? Oh, oh, the thing that I wanted to ask him, I said, you know, there's no constitutional uh, guidelines to Supreme Court justices. And so the only problem is, or the only thing that a Supreme Court justice has to have is the right political philosophy. And if that's true, why don't they let the American people vote for Supreme Court justices? Hmm. Interesting idea. Um, I uh, maybe next time we have him or, or or Senator Sanders on, if Senator Sanders ever deigns to join us, uh, it would be uh, a question for for them. So I'll try to remember that one, Fred. Fred, I gotta go, but thank you for the call. Uh, okay. It's always good talking okay. with you. Yep, Take care. Thanks. Hey, I do want to introduce my next guest. Uh, Katie Jickling is a healthcare writer with uh, VTDigger.org and. Uh, Boy, there's uh, not much going on in the healthcare beat lately. You got this little COVID-19 thing, for instance. Yikes. Uh, that's got to be uh, tough work, actually, for, for Ms. Jickling here. What do you, uh, Katie, thank you very much for joining us this morning. What do you think? Has it uh, been a pretty depressing year for you? Hi, Dave. Yeah, it's uh, just, you know, quiet and calm, and everybody's very, uh, you know, happy and complacent and healthy. So, mm. no. Yeah, I don't think um, so. It's, 
yeah, people people care a lot about healthcare all of a sudden. So. Yeah, uh, that is that is true. What what is the uh, what is the current status? I mean, I, I it's hard to it's frankly hard to keep up even for somebody who tries to follow the news like me day after day with the health health uh, department postings and so on. Uh, I get this sort of sense that uh, you know Vermont continues to be uh, uh, just uh, moseying along the bottom here in terms of the. Um, Moseying along the bottom in terms of uh, the instances of, of COVID nineteen here, but but also that we are constantly under threat for you know a big a big surge here. Um, is that a is that a reasonable reading of the situation? Yes. Well, you've probably seen the uh, national maps put out by mm-hmm. the Vermont Department of Health, where the the red, which is the higher number of COVID cases, is just spreading across the country and is, um, you know, creeping toward Vermont. And as of, you know, early this week, only only Vermont and Maine were still green with low case numbers. And so there certainly is a growing number of cases around. We're seeing some of the highest numbers we've seen in since the start of the pandemic around the country. And I think people are saying, you know, it's only a matter of time when travelers or other people, um, you know, working or coming to Vermont, that there will be um, cases here. And we have started to see the numbers rise. The seven-day case total was 139 this past week, which is higher than we've seen in months and that is a result of about three mainly three outbreaks one is at st michael's college where there were 26 cases and uh, 100 so far and 137 uh, students people in quarantine that school went entirely remote then there was a uh, instance of a wedding up in cambridge where um, people were infected and lastly, there's been this outbreak in central Vermont based on uh, a hockey team in uh, that, that played in Montpelier. And as a result, uh, about 40, uh, 43, I think, was the last number of people have been infected from that. Yeah. So really, so- this is just like a few clusters of cases. And, you know, Vermont's testing is still quite high comparatively speaking so uh i think i think whether or not we can contain those will be a big question about whether the virus uh spreads much more broadly and um talk to us about the efforts to contain i mean we hear talk of con- contact tracing um how how effective is that really is it in, and and are there are there weaknesses in it that's a that's a good question. The state is doing contact tracing, and mm-hmm. just as a reminder, that's just you know the the state talks to you about everybody you came in contact with, and they'll reach out to each of those individuals and say, "Hey, you were likely exposed to the virus at this date." I think so, the the weakness is primarily about well, there are certainly limitations to that, right? Like if if this is a student who goes to school, are you going to call every single person in the school? Probably not. So I think that that can be a weakness just in terms of capacity. But I think the main thing is whether people 
who do come in contact or people who do travel, whether they quarantine. We've heard about pandemic fatigue where people are just tired. They're tired of making sacrifices or staying home or not seeing their friends. Um, And so people are starting to let down their guard and we're seeing that around the country. And so whether or not, I think Vermont has done an excellent job in a lot of ways in just really being cognizant and social distancing and wearing masks and all these things that we know work. But whether or not we can keep that up, I think will be, uh, you know, a, a big question about whether, about what happens in terms of cases. And of course, with the with the, uh, with the holidays coming, uh, you know, this is the a big time of year, upcoming for family gatherings. People wanting to get together for Thanksgiving, and then of course, uh, you know, Christmas and Hanukkah, et cetera. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, it, how how palpable is the fear that you're sensing from, say, state health officials and so on, about uh, a potential uh, for for uh, family gatherings to be probably not super spreader events, but uh, you know, spreader events. Yeah, it's definitely only a question that they're considering. They're, and, and it's not fear, but a, a trying to determine what's the best way to, you know, create uh, structures or, or whatever so that people, so that those things don't happen. And one thing mm-hmm. the state was considering was, well, so maybe we should have schools go remote or have more remote learning in and around the holidays. Or maybe we should not allow winter sports to start until after the holidays and just to decrease the number, the modes of transmission during that time period. The state hasn't yet decided. Um, and certainly I would guess that I, I would, you know, say we should expect like a, a pretty big just sort of marketing campaign from the Department of Health about about exactly that. Like think about who you're spending time with, how you're quarantining, keep yourself and others safe. Yeah, um, and, and in terms of the contact tracing, just for a moment, I, I, I mean, I, I still feel as though a lot of people have only a vague notion of how that works. So somebody, somebody actually uh, is test, tested positive for the coronavirus, and the health department asks that person basically for a list of all the people you have been in uh, in contact with over the past what couple of weeks? Is that right? Yes, that's right. And okay. the the number of what exactly a close contact means is something that has been changing. So whether or not you've been in, it was recently changed based on a study in Vermont to be um, the, sort of the cumulative number of t- amount of time that you have spent with an individual over, you know, a matter of hours. So, mm-hmm. you know, it could be, you know, several several hours where you're having coffee with somebody. It could be um, somebody that you're just seeing multiple times over over a day, for instance. But it's not somebody. It's not the person at the checkout counter because you're just if you're grocery shopping because you're just not in contact with them for a long enough time to spread the virus, according to health officials. So this sounds, this sounds almost like a household member where, uh, you know, in a typical family, you might have a kid, uh, let's say there's a teenager in the household, uh, and you are going to be, uh, you know, having a meal uh, together, or you, you're going to be um, maybe uh, doing a couple of chores together at some, some other juncture of the day or something, uh, and, you know, that kind of thing. But, but a lot of, the, a lot of, for a lot of the day, 
you'll be in say different parts of the house or 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 the yard or whatever or maybe maybe the person one of the family members or or both will be out running errands or doing other things that uh that you know basically so in in the course of a day you you know uh you could have uh a, a cumulative amount of contact which would meet this new standard uh, just with somebody living in your household right Right. If somebody's living in your house, they're probably a close contact. And then, yes, the, yeah. the contact tracers will, will contact all those people and say, you know, you've been exposed and give them a call right. and say, are you feeling symptoms? You should self-monitor and get a test. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Of course, autumn time, a lot of people start to, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of a scratchy throat myself this week, uh, you know, coughing <laughs> during the breaks here to try not to do it too much on the air. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't think, I really don't, I, I mean, this sort of feels like normal, uh, just seasonal allergies or whatever crud, you know, uh, comes on occasionally. Um, how, do, how, how do you tell the difference? That is a question that a lot of people are wrestling with. And in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, you can't. Some of it, yeah. you just, you know personally, for instance, you know, an individual may know, okay, I have allergies allergies at this time of year because of whatever allergen. Um, and, and then you know sort of what, what to expect, and that is probably not COVID. But um, th- there are we're – we're trying to figure that out, and we're trying to do it fast. So that's why the Department of Health is really encouraging everybody to get flu shots. So then mm-hmm. people are less likely to get the flu and less likely to think that maybe they have COVID. Um, yeah. They're also uh, trying to, there, there's a new test that's being developed that where you're tested uh, sort of, you know, with a nose swab and it runs, it runs the test for both flu and for COVID at the same time. Hmm. So basically hmm. then you would know immediately that it is the flu or, you know, or it's not as well as about whether you have COVID. So that's just another way to try to address that. Um, but yep. it is a challenge because preschools are any kid that has a runny nose, the, the mm-hmm. child is being sent home because even though more than likely they do not have COVID. So it's really a tricky question. Yeah, that, that uh, certainly sets up a whole range of challenges that are just part of the overall giant uh, set of challenges with all this stuff. By the way, it reminds me to mention that uh, after the Dave Graham show here today, the uh, uh, governor's uh, regular Tuesday and Friday uh, news conferences about the state's response to the uh, COVID crisis, where he is joined by other top officials and usually, uh, in fact, I think always including uh, Health Commissioner Dr. Mark Levine. Uh, they are uh, going to be providing another update on what is going on with the uh, COVID crisis here in Vermont uh, just after the uh, 11 o'clock break for when we go to CBS News and then right to live special coverage here on WDEV as we have throughout uh, following the uh, following the governor's uh, regular news conferences here on the uh, COVID crisis. So, And um, Katie, I'm sure you have been in about every one of those. Is that right? I, I usually tune in or uh, one of my colleagues does certainly. Yeah, uh, you finding those useful? Is that is that a really a good way to uh, to sort of manage the uh, public communications here? 
I, I do think it's it's really interesting the way in which the state is and, and, you know, the governor and the health commissioner, they're all obviously very, very busy and they've really prioritized talking to the public and communicating what's going on. And they've done that really a remarkable amount. If you remember, the press conferences were three times a week for months and they've changed to twice a week. And yep. They've really made themselves available to, for interviews and, and you know, uh, that, that kind of thing as well. So I think that has really been part of their strategy. And I think people have, and you just see from the approval ratings of um, uh, Governor Scott and of his other, you know, officials, um, that I, I think it's worked. It's really created a, a significant amount of trust in mm-hmm. the government and in their response. And so I, I do think, even though there may not be breaking news, I think the cons- every every press conference, I think the consistency has really, and and the broad outreach has been helpful for people. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is uh, uh, it's, it's been a very interesting process in kind of. Uh, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know eventually somebody will get a will get a, a PhD in in public communications or something based with a thesis about how this was done and how it worked and and maybe comparing with a, with some other other governors around the country in terms of you know frequency of news conferences and uh, and uh, participants and the broad range of government agencies involved. I mean, we've we've been hearing regu- regularly at these news conferences from. Human services and from commerce and community development and from uh, <clears throat> any number of other uh, any number of other uh, folks who are leading various departments in the in the state government and uh, I do think it has been a really uh, overall a very useful exercise. I mean, there are times when they start dragging on two two hours. And, I, and I'm listening, and I'm kind of going, "Are we going to get done soon?" <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, that's that is just, I suppose, I suppose uh, you know, part of what you pay, but uh, uh, for an otherwise very uh, free service, I should say. And um, Katie, I, I wanted to get to a couple of other topics though, just before uh, we we finish up. And one is, or at least one, because actually we only have a couple minutes left. But um, all payer, uh, the all payer model. Uh, Scott Milne has been taking some grief for basically uh, indicating support for that in, in the, the lieutenant governor's race. He's been getting hit from uh, some elements on the right. Uh, um, is, it, is it surprising to have the Republican supporting that uh, that program? No, I don't think so. I, I think we we see uh, the governor, Governor Phil Scott, has also supported it, and yeah. I I think. In some ways, it, it seems more conservative because yeah. many of its opponents are people who want single payer and want a government. Hey, I was wrong, Katie. We we are. Uh, I got the cue wrong. We we are all of a sudden about out of time here. I'm sorry. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Katie Jickling of BTDigger.org. We got to go to a top of the hour CBS News break. Thanks, Katie. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Picture Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. 
It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Thanks for uh, staying with us into our second hour on this Tuesday morning. And uh, we have a few minutes to open the phone lines here on the Dave Graham Show. Uh, normally we uh, go to one of our CBS News uh, correspondents uh, this time of day, but uh, we're unable to line that up this morning. And uh, so hoping the listeners will have some things to say. Uh, certainly uh, a lot of big news floating around out there, including the uh, the appointment, the completion of the appointment, uh, Amy Coney Barrett to uh, – to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, she is expected to be formally sworn in at the court today and uh, assume her, her duties on the uh, on the nine-member judicial panel that uh, leads the judiciary for the entire country. Uh, this has got uh, <clears throat> a lot of uh, Democrats upset, of course. Uh, they didn't like uh, several aspects of this, one of, one of them being that the, uh, looking back to 2016, when the uh, the Senate went for nine or ten months without granting a hearing to a nominee by President Obama. Merrick Garland uh, had been chosen by uh, President Obama to take an open seat on the Supreme Court following the death of uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. And, of course, the Senate never acted. Uh, this time, the Senate acted with a much greater dispatch. Uh, instead of uh, a nine- or ten-month interregnum between uh, leaving an open seat on the court, uh, the uh, Senate decided within a matter of weeks to... Uh, to uh, confirm the nominee of uh, President Trump uh, before the election. This, of course, uh, we had Senator Patrick Leahy on in the first half hour of the show this morning. He was uh, complaining uh, bitterly about that, as are many Democrats. Uh, Senator Chris Coons, who is a Democrat from Delaware, was on the uh, Rachel Maddow show last night. I didn't actually watch the program, but I was just reading a, a, an account of it this morning. And... Uh, indicating that uh, he is calling for a quote-unquote rebalancing of the federal judiciary uh, following this, these latest developments. And um, how that would work is uh, really anybody's guess, but uh, one, one, one thing I've seen repeat, repeatedly in the media recently is discussion about a, an effort to perhaps expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court uh, to try to... Uh, uh, essentially get closer to even right now it looks like a six to three conservative majority on the court and um of course that has uh, many conservative republicans perfectly happy they think that is the bulwark against a possible uh, democratic uh, biden administration and possible democratic takeover of the senate uh, we don't know, obviously, in, in either case whether those things will happen, but if they do, the uh, conservatives certainly like the insurance policy of having at least one branch of the government dominated by uh, their uh, their folks. And so um, wondering what the uh, what the listeners out there think. 244-1777 is the local number in Waterbury. The toll-free number is one 291 8255 I believe we have Dave from Plainfield on the line. Good morning, Dave. Oh, good morning. I just wanted to make sure I called in yesterday on Bill, and I was kind of ricocheting. I called in Bill about yesterday. I didn't get to talk about what I wanted to yesterday. Um, I found an, there's an incredible letter written in the Caledonia paper on um, this Saturday uh, from Sheriff Trevor Colby, Dave, who was uh, the sheriff of Orleans County. It's a very, very long letter that he gave him both boy. Essex, I believe. The gist of it, the gist of it is something I've been yelling about. I don't know if you've noticed what's going on in Burlington or the courts here, but he gives really detailed descriptions of this. You talk about judges, and I'm going to call him up and say, it's 
turnstile justice in Vermont. The heck again with 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 a with a this federal junk. I've been in jail my whole life, Dave. I've been arrested ever since I've been in Vermont uh, for possession of pot. Now, why did I get arrested? Because he's a Russian, okay? And that's what they told me in the jails. Anyway, from, from 83 to 2007, I was in jail. And I get a good look at what type of people are in jail, because I was never a criminal, okay? This is the only thing I've been arrested for my whole life. And um, this is this gives frightening details, Dave, on what happens. You arrest somebody for this and that. He goes in front of the judge no bail, then he does something and they keep have, the cops keep having to pick him up and pick him up and they keep violating and violating. Now, I want to point out to you, this is what's going on if you read the New York papers, this is what's going on in New York. It's frightening, you know, for somebody particularly like me who's, whose father-in-law is a really tough New York City cop, a really tough guy. And uh, I've, like I said, been in the, I've been in jail in four or five different states for pot. And I've got something to compare it about not being a criminal. I've got nothing on my police record at all except for possession of pot. And um, this is a frightening situation. And it's happening in Burlington. Uh, somebody called in from one of the, um, somebody's show. Uh, one of the store owners has somebody was taking a dump in, in the middle of the sidewalk. And I got a solution. This is how it started in San Francisco, Dave. So this issue, again, with the federal judges, that doesn't matter a whit. This is, this is. They, this is just frightening if you knew the court system the way I do and the way they get people on probation. So we were talking about that last night. Probation in this state, the biggest lie a, judges, a judge ever says is you've got a year of probation. The FSU people who run it tell you probation. You can be get one year probation and be on it for six in this state. Not on parole. If you hey. parole, it's a definite discharge state. But anyway. Okay. Hey, Dave, i got to jump because i got other callers lined up. But I, I appreciate the call. Thank you for checking in with us this morning. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Eileen in Jericho. Good morning, Eileen. Um, good morning. Um, I wanted to comment on something that Senator Leahy had said, which I think was not completely accurate. And um, I remember I did hear some of the um, listen to some of the hearing, and I remember the remark by uh, Amy Coney Barrett about no one being above the law, and I distinctly remember her saying it. And um, I went back. I just googled. If you just Google her name and those words, you'll come up with many uh, videos that clearly says no one is above the law. What was the question was more um, specific. They were talking about the president pardoning himself. And, you know, just as she did all through the hearing, she was consistent. She can't uh, comment on cases that may come up. She explained why she didn't, you know, couldn't answer that specifically because she has to be a judge. <laughs> she has to listen to what the details are. And um, so, anyway, I just, I just, it really kind of um, bothers me that he came out and said that that's what she said. That no one is above the law. You know that she didn't say it, and she did clearly say it. And he confirmed in his uh, video uh, that she said it. So I just wanted to. Um, I felt compelled to not leave that out there. Um, also, Whoa. when you talk about conservative judges, conservative judges are judges who judge decisions based on the written word of the Constitution. It's not a scary thing. It's a good thing. It protects all of us. We don't want judges that are going to be reading things that aren't there, you know, that, that you know, insinuating something when they're not there. And I don't understand why that is such a... Um, a scary thing, you know. If if the things you're bringing, to, if the laws that we're passing are constitutional, there's nothing to worry about. Anyway, those are my comments. 
Do you, uh, Eileen, I'm wondering if, if he, it's, it sounds like you appreciate, uh, Judge, uh, Barrett's, uh, or now Justice Barrett's, uh, uh, advocacy for what she calls originalism, meaning you really try to adhere, uh, strictly to the original text of the Constitution. Is that right? I'm not a lawyer, um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> it just, that seems but, the Constitution isn't supposed to be, it's, it's stated, but the way that I've always heard it explained, you know, is that laws are fluid. They can change. If something's passed, people don't like it, you change it. It's, it's, you yeah. know, but the Constitution is something that doesn't change unless you go through the amendment process, the lengthy amendment process to change it. And it was meant mm-hmm. to be that way. It was meant to be that way so that we would have solid rock on building our, our laws. And um, you can change it. It's just difficult. You know, we're, we're, you know, so that's the way it's meant to be. And it protects all of us. And all Americans should be, you know, comfortable with uh, a justice that makes decisions that way. Because you have nothing to worry about as long as the laws that are being passed are constitutional. Okay. Uh, thank you for the call. I appreciate your comments. And uh, we've got a strong battery of guests lined up. I've told us the A-Team from the University of Vermont's uh, Community News Service. This is in uh, a relatively new program that they have at the University of Vermont uh, called uh, Reporting and Documentary Storytelling. Uh, not really a formal journalism department from what I know as uh, as some schools have, but uh, definitely some good training there. It looks like going on for uh, budding journalists and uh, the uh, co-director of the of this uh, program, reporting and documentary storytelling, is Richard Watts. He joins us on the air this morning uh, on the phone, rather I should say. Well, both actually. But uh, Richard, uh, thank you very much for joining me. You bet. Hey, Dave. Hey, uh, and we also have two students who are uh, participants in the program as well. Uh, Ryan uh, Ryan Joseph uh, joins us, I believe. Uh, Ryan, are you there? I am. How's it going this morning, Dave? Good. Thanks for joining me. Uh, also, um, uh, Valentina Chohansky is is joining us on the phone as well. And uh, Valentina, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I want to start with a little bit of an overview here. Um, maybe I'll get your uh, your mentor here, uh, Richard uh, Watts, to uh, describe a little bit about the program and tell me if I've uh, if I've misdescribed it so far. And also, um, uh, and and also to uh, fill us in on what the project is that uh, you have been uh, participating in. So, Richard, uh, take it away. Well, it's, um, it's really Richard Watts. <laughs> Oh, okay. We had a little communication breakdown. I don't think yeah. you heard the question, which was basically yeah. uh, tell us tell us about this uh, uh, the uh, re- reporting and documentary storytelling program briefly, and then talk to us about the um, about the project that uh, the the uh, vote tracking project that the students are undertaking here. So I'll I'll talk about the so journalism has never been more important as you, Mr. Graham, know and. The idea of the community news service is to help support local community papers to provide local and hyper-local news because one of the things that's happened is there's so much less journalism at the local level as newsrooms have been diminished and ad revenues have been sucked away by Google and Facebook. So 
what we've been trying to do is give students real experiences, writing real stories, working with local papers, and that's been really exciting. We have maybe 25 or 30 students working on it. And out of that is because we have this election looming and all the interesting things happening around the nation and, of course, here in Vermont, we focused in on some really important election stories. And um, I'll let the, the two leaders of those different projects, maybe they can talk about the research and work that they have been doing around this election here in Vermont. Okay, uh, let, let's start with uh, with Valentina. Um, you're into the project uh, and describe it to us and uh, and tell us a, a little bit about what you have been doing. Sure. So um, I've basically been working with the community service to develop a interactive map um, that breaks down Vermont by town, and um, it is updated every day with incoming data from the Secretary of State's office showing the percentage of ballots that have been received by the town clerks. So essentially we're seeing um, every day as the election's been going on what percentage of the ballot has been returned. Um, And that's really exciting because this is the first time that every registered voter was mailed a a ballot. And, you know, we hope that the absentee voting in Vermont will, you know, essentially increase voter participation in the state. And I think that's really exciting, especially in this very unique election. Now, I saw a ranking that uh, Richard uh, had sent me from the other day. I believe it was uh, as of Friday. It looked like uh, Shelburne was in the lead in terms of the percentage of uh, local voters who had uh, voted already and that uh, Pownall was bringing up the rear. Is that uh, still still pretty much the case? Yeah, that's, that's still pretty much the case. Um, right as of yesterday's data, which came in around 4, 4 p.m., Shelburne is still... Um, has the highest percentage of ballots received, it's over 60 percent, and Norwich as well is over 60 percent of ballots hmm. returned. Wow, and uh, uh, interesting to me that, uh, of course, both of these are among the wealthiest uh, communities in the state. Do you see any correla- correlation there? Um, that would be really interesting for me to look more into. Um, I, I see that as well, um, but I don't know if I would confirm that without actually running that through all the towns. The interesting hypothesis to test, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Ryan, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, your end of the research here and uh, what you have been finding so far. Yeah, so I've been working uh, with slightly adjacent to the Community News Service um, and with Richard, who's on the line, and uh, my group had been working on just kind of looking at and analyzing the uh, elections and the ballot return data that Valentina has been processing through that map. Um, mm-hmm. And while we were thinking about it, we kind of decided that we could maybe think about what kind of demographics are voting. And I was really interested in uh, Vermont prisoner voting because incarcerated residents still retain that right, even if they're uh, in one of the state facilities. So it's, it's really hard to actually find that data because the state uh, treats everyone the same, regardless of whether or not they're living at their legal address or if they're living in a state facility. Um, so I've been kind of trying to parse through as much of the ballot return data that the Secretary of State's office uh, releases every day, it's the same data that Valentina goes through, um, and seeing if I can confirm whether or not someone is incarcerated and received a ballot and is registered to vote. 
So the end goal was to, to see how many people who are currently incarcerated in the state prison system um, are registered voters and how many are actually voting so far. It's interesting, too. I guess Vermont is one of three jurisdictions in the country, the others being Maine and uh, the District of Columbia, where uh, folks who are currently incarcerated are allowed to vote. Uh, we've had uh, quite a bit of uh, news coverage of uh, uh, developments in Florida where there was a statewide referendum a couple of years ago that said that folks who had served time, who, are, who had been convicted of felonies and since been released back into the community after serving some time, uh, were going to be eligible to vote. But then it turned out that a lot of them have been blocked from voting because uh, the, the legislature then uh, uh, stepped in with a law to say that, that they had to pay off all uh, all outstanding uh, court uh, fees and fines and, and all of that other sort of stuff uh, that may have actually been levied years ago. Uh, and if they still have to be hanging out there on the books and uh, connected with an individual voter, uh, that person is blocked. Uh, have you followed that uh, and, and sort of thought about that in comparison to, way to Vermont's approach? Um, I've followed it very, like, ever so slightly, I would say. Um, I am aware of what's been going on down there, but I haven't paid, like, the most attention to it. Um, mm-hmm. But compared to Vermont, it, it definitely is really interesting because, uh, from what I've found so far, the numbers of those who are registered to vote compared to the whole population and then the number that are voting is pretty low in the state of Vermont. Um, and it makes you kind of wonder what that would be like if the scenario was that Vermont residents had just been returned that right to vote after having been forced to forfeit it upon conviction. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it creates an interesting scenario surrounding the greater conversation of incarcerated uh, voting rights. Um, I've talked to a couple of professors at the University of Vermont who, who talk about this idea of de facto disenfranchisement, which is that a lot of people misunderstand what the actual voter rights are of incarcerated people in the nation, and they just believe that if you're in jail, you don't necessarily have that right to vote. But somewhere around like two-thirds, I believe he said, of the prison population um, is actually eligible to vote because they haven't been convicted, and they're just waiting on, on bail or to receive a hearing. So I think contrasting those two, it it makes it interesting to consider what the ramifications of making people forfeit that right and then regaining that right after serving a sentence. Hmm. So um, I would think that the purpose of the Vermont law to say, you know, if Vermont's law says that incarcerated people may vote, um, and and that's the fundamental underlying purpose, I think you raised some interesting questions about sort of how well that is being met. And, uh, and of course, I'm sure the challenges are greater this year just in terms of getting people into uh, Vermont's facilities to uh, talk to uh, inmates and so on about, uh, about their right to vote and, and how, how they might, uh, they might want to vote and, and, and getting the ballots to them and, and collect it again, et cetera. All of that uh, coming in the in the against the backdrop of the current COVID crisis. Um, how how are we doing on this front this year? Are, are, is Vermont actually, if it is a state that that you know uh, somebody might want to say we have a point of pride here that we really are so serious about the franchise that we allow our prisoners to vote? Uh, is that a, is that sort of uh, standard actually being carried out? Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a really interesting answer to that question. Uh, so thanks for asking it, Dave. Um, the, the answer is, from what 
understand, and I've talked to a few people, or at least one person from the Department of Corrections, um, and then I've been fortunate enough to talk to someone who is a former resident of one of the facilities. And based on my understanding, it they, the people in the Department of Corrections do a really fantastic job of making sure that people in those facilities know that they have that right to vote. And in a normal year when there's not a pandemic going on, there's uh, a lot of like voter registration drives going on with uh, volunteer groups and local nonprofits. I think the two big ones are Disability Rights Vermont and League of Women Voters in Vermont. Um, and usually they they have much more easy access to people inside of those facilities, making it easier to register them. But during COVID, they've had to limit entry for all kinds of people, whether or not it's family members visiting or uh, people coming in for voter drives. So that's definitely put a damper on the ability of people to uh, get registered, um, especially because now you have to request your ballot uh, or at least request registration from inside. Um, but it, it sort of put a damper as far as COVID goes. But in general, it it seems like Vermont uh, incarcerated residents would have the all the knowledge they need to know about whether or not they, they can vote and wish that, like if they wish to vote as well. So I want to do a little comparison here. Valentina, uh, tell us, uh, Shelburne still leads, I gather, in percentage of, um, of residents who have uh, who have voted so far. What is that percentage in Shelburne? It is a little bit above 61%. It's 61.38% right now. And just for Six, comparison, the... 6-1 six one, one. Six, or 5-1? 6-1? 6-1, yes. Yeah, okay. Norwich is That's, also in the 61% range, but... Just to compare to the state, the total percentage in the state of Vermont of return ballots is 44. percent So that's, that's okay. a big jump. Uh, and and um, Ryan, uh, how, what, what's the what's the uh, what's the analogous percentage for inmates in Vermont right now? Yeah, so what this is per- pretty interesting too. Um, just to give a little background to this answer as well, uh, for those who don't know. The state of Vermont also contracts out to a facility in uh, Mississippi at the Tallahassee County Correctional Facility. Yep. So there's approximately 211 inmates that are uh, placed there during this time. Uh, and out of all of the, the Vermont residents that are in Oh, Canada, i got to interrupt, Ryan, and the, uh, hang on a sec. The tension builds here. You're going to give us the number after the break. <laughs> We've actually yeah. got to go to a bottom of the hours news minute from CBS couple words from our sponsors and so hang on there listeners uh you you will get the number from ryan of uh the percentage of inmates in vermont who have voted so far vermont and uh, tallahatchie who have voted so far we'll be back with that in just a couple minutes exciting things are happening in warren village the picture in and warren store are under new management upgrades and improvements are in the works maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back, and uh, we are... uh, Glad to say that we have a couple of uh, University of Vermont students on the line with us talking about uh, 
the Community News Service. Uh, it is a, uh, a program at the university uh, where budding journalists get uh, some experience uh, getting stories. And uh, one of the things that the Community News Service has been doing uh, lately is uh, tracking early participation in the uh, in the election upcoming. Uh, and uh, I wanted to uh, ask uh, Valentina Chahansky to uh, and Valentina once again. Am I pronouncing your name, your name correctly? Yes, Valentina Chohansky, that's it. All right, there we go. Okay, <laughs> just wanted to make sure. Um, in the uh, and and uh, uh, we all we also have with us uh, uh, Ryan uh, Ryan. Refresh in your last name now. I'm having a brain cramp. That's okay. Ryan Joseph. There we go. <laughs> okay, uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of emails coming in all the time and. Uh, Texts and stuff, and uh, sometimes the uh, the uh, brain gets a little confused here. In this uh, <laughs> your old your old host here, anyway. Uh, <laughs> so Ryan Joseph and uh, Valentina Johansky, I wanted to ask you. Uh, this seems like a particularly ripe year uh, in which to launch this project because we have uh, this phenomenon of uh, many people essentially being urged or urging themselves to vote early so that uh, we can keep the crowds on election day down uh, and that obviously is a key goal uh, to preserve everyone's health uh, in the face of the coronavirus crisis um, would this have been an, as effective a project uh, i'll ask you valentina first uh, um, to would this have been as effective a project in uh, say years past um, well, easy answer, I would say, yes, it would still have been an interesting project to do just because the the interactive nature of it, the way that it's using data every day gives gives folks a way to be actively engaged in the election. Um, and based on what you just touched on, it's extra interesting this year in this particular election during this pandemic because you're absolutely right. Like if, if no one decided to vote, with the absentee ballots, then it, it would be more of a safety concern for the voters, for the town's employees. You know, I spoke with a few town clerks as well as um, Jim Condiff, Secretary of State, about this. And, you know, a big concern is keeping Vermonters safe and protecting everyone's right to vote in this country in a way that's safe for them and accessible for them. And why I think this project is particularly important in this election. But I would hope that it could be carried out into future elections as well to you know, be able to compare to see if if this method of voting with everyone being sent their ballot, if they're registered in the state, like will that increase voter participation? Because if so, we should you know consider that being something to do in the future as well. And uh, Ryan, um, what do you what, what are your thoughts about this question of of uh, this? I mean, I wonder, you know, when when uh, Valentina said a few moments ago that uh, Shelburne was uh, had 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 more than sixty one percent of its registered voters vote uh, already, um, that number probably would have been lower in years past, wouldn't it have? Um, I would imagine potentially, yeah. Um, I'm from Milton, Vermont, so. I'll- just the opposite end of Chittenden County. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always seen that our numbers tend to be pretty low. Um, and even this year, I, the percentage registered, because I've been following Valentina's map pretty closely as well, uh, does seem to be higher than usual, but it's still, I think we're only in the, Milton is only in the 30%, 40% range. 
Um, mm. So I, I would definitely agree with what she said. I think giving people more ballot access uh, by default because of COVID, but in general just gives people that opportunity to do something that they may not think they have the time to do or may not have actually had the time to go and, and vote and participate in the system. Now, again, so, so Milton, somewhere in the 30s, you said the statewide average was about 48%. Is that right? 44 as of yesterday's data, which came in at 4 p.m. Okay, 44. Thank you so much, Valentina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got <laughs> All right, Ryan. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot here. you got to defend your hometown here. What's going on in Milton? Why are they below average on this stuff? That's a great question. Um, my town, as far as Chinon County goes, I've always thought has been uh, a bit of an oddball in the county. Uh, I think it's partly because we border Franklin County, which historically has been more of a red county, if we're going to talk Vermont politics, than Chinon County, which has for a while now been a blue county. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we kind of straddle that line a little bit, and uh, we definitely have an older population as well, although it's, it's a growing town. Um, so anecdotally, from my experience growing up, um, I think some of it's just that people are trying to figure out what the state of the town is going to be like going forward, um, and the people who, who go out and vote are the people that have been there for generations, um, and the people that don't go out and vote yet are either new to the town or they're just kind of stuck in this in-between of figuring out what Milton is about and whether or not we're a Chittenden County town or a Franklin County town. It's, it's a very interesting dynamic, but I think I think Milton is looking looking upward and onward as far as voting goes in the future. I'm pretty excited for, for what this town will look like soon. Valentina, I don't think I learned your hometown. Where is that? I'm actually not originally from Vermont. I'm from New Jersey, um, which has been having some, some interesting um, interesting results back with the, the absentee voting, um, also looking like an increase. Um, and... Yeah, I think Phil Scott was very excited, our, our governor also, just that um, voting by mail could be a really positive thing for, for democracy. So, I mean, I, I live in Burlington now, but I'm not originally from here. Um, Got it, okay. Doing this, yeah, doing this project has been really interesting for me personally, actually, to just get more involved in, in Vermont politics specifically. Um, and just going off of that, I would encourage anyone listening, you haven't voted yet, Please go out and do that. Um, voting is a very, you know, private and personal individual activity, but the power of this democracy comes from the communal activity and like, everyone feeling that, like, their their vote can can matter. You know. That's uh, that's well said, and certainly we uh, we concur here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Uh, Valentina, do you do you have a do you have a sense or a fear that uh, there are some forces in the country looking to uh, suppress the vote or or limit the franchise in any way, and uh, and uh, what what should happen there? Um, that's that's a big question, um, and yeah, I wish I had all the answers for it. Um, but to be honest with you, I do, I, I see that fear, um, even in, in the interviews I did with, uh, town clerks around Vermont, um, they expressed to me that a lot of, of citizens were calling them with concerns about invoice voting fraud, and also Jim Condos knows that there really, there isn't a, shouldn't be a concern for, for voting fraud, specifically with the absentee ballots, um, there's not really really space for that in in the way that 
it's being conducted in Vermont. But, you know, absolutely there are people in this country who, you know, would like to suppress the vote and alter that, which is terrifying, if you ask me. Um, And in my opinion, that's all the more reason to, one, be an informed citizen and really engage with, with the election. I think it's kind of impossible to detach yourself from politics at this point in our nation's history. It's really really a deciding a deciding space for us right now um so yeah i think i think just staying informed and you know if you make the decision to vote to do it intentionally um yeah ryan ryan what are your thoughts on this front do you have a sense that uh that there are efforts uh, underway to uh, try to suppress the vote in parts of the country and and uh, have you seen any evidence of this in vermont and uh uh, what do you think uh, wouldn't I mean is it is that okay or should something be done about it uh, what, are, what are your thoughts um, yeah great thanks for asking me um, I think I definitely agree with everything that Valentina just said um, I don't want to try to add too much to that because she said it pretty well um, but I I would agree with with what Secretary of State Jim Condo said I believe it was a couple of weeks ago that like voter suppression and um, intimidation will not be tolerated in the state I think Vermont is generally insulated pretty well from some of that really heated uh, national partisan politics stuff that goes on, <clears throat> particularly with like voter suppression intimidation. But I, I don't think that means that we're immune from it. Um, and I hope that we don't see things like that going on in the state. But I think Vermonters do vote uh, intentionally and respect each other's right to do so. So I, I don't believe that that will be too much of an issue within our state. But as far as the, the national discussion goes, um, it, I absolutely believe that there's there's definitely efforts going on to make sure that people are not going out to exercise that right, whether that's because they're scared that they might contract COVID-19 um, or they just actually fear for their well-being as far as calls for people to stand by the polls and watch them, um, which is, again, a form of voter intimidation, um, not to mention states like Texas that put ballot boxes or uh, voting places in one place in an entire county for like millions of people um, people should really have access to the ballot and not have it be a bunch of hurdles that they have to jump over so I think it is going on this year I'd love to see things change going forward but I am also very thankful that Vermont and the residents that live here take it pretty seriously Valentina Chohansky, I'm wondering, um, just to, just to sort of double check and make sure that our listeners are fully understand this, uh, when we talk about a place like Shelburne with uh, just over 61% of, uh, of folks, uh, having voted already, I wanna, I wanna sort of dig into that number a little bit. And so that includes people who have mailed ballots in, who have, uh, taken them, I don't know if there's a drop box in Shelburne or, yeah. uh, taking them down to the town clerk's office, all of the categories of, of early voting are added into that figure, correct? Yeah, so let me just go off that for just a second. So that's mm-hmm. the numbers that you can see in the map on the vote tracker um, are all ballots received by the town clerk. So if if you have, the, the raw data is also available on the, the article attached to the map in the community service, um, but that is just ballots that were received by the town clerk. So should also note that that number includes ballots that were received by the clerk and may be defective in some way. And 
in Vermont right now, there's no way to rectify those ballots that were defective. Um, so I'd also to people who haven't maybe haven't sent their their ballot in yet but plan to really make sure you read the instructions um, because it, it's unfortunate for to see the numbers um, of ballots that won't be counted but are received. Yeah, um, and, but looking again at that sixty-one percent, that that is uh, that is of registered voters in the town. Is that how that works? It's, so the numbers that I have are from all, yeah, all of the the ballots that were sent. So the data, the file that I get from the Secretary of State's office, um, yep. has all of the ballots that were sent. So all registered voters were sent a ballot. So yes, that's the number. Um, I can actually give you that number. So upwards of 450,000 ballots were sent, and as of right now, a little more than 200,000 have been received. Um, some of them uh, effective, but yeah, there's your, your number for that. Yeah, so um, how does that, how does that compare with uh, with past election turnouts overall? I mean, so let, let's say I mean let's take the statewide figures for a moment, and and uh, uh, it sounds like almost half of almost half of the uh, registered voters, assuming all the registered voters in the state got ballots, um, and and uh, and almost half of them have been returned. Uh, how does that compare with um, with turnout, say, 2016 turnout, if you know? That's a great question. If Richard is still on, maybe maybe he would have a better answer for that than I would. Um, or Ryan, I don't know if you. Uh, I don't think I don't think Richard is still with us, unfortunately. But uh, okay. maybe um, if he's listening and wants to call in and fill us in, that would be fine. <laughs> actually, meanwhile, though, uh, we I do. Hold up, I can. Uh, yeah, I, I can actually jump in with that. Um, in the general election in 2016, there were 91,000 early and mail-in ballots. So again, mm-hmm. in 2016 general election, 91,000 just for early and mail-in ballots, and. As I just said, we already have over two hundred thousand ballots returned. Wow! Yeah, yeah. So quite a good. jump. Uh, and I wanted to uh, also um, ask a little bit more broadly in just the last few minutes we have remaining. Um, uh, Ryan, perhaps you could uh, fill us in. I understand that with the Community News Service, some of the students, uh, and, I, and I want to find out if this is the case with the two of you, have been able to get out into uh, into the, uh, Richard was talking very early on, Richard Watts, the direct co-director, about uh, getting students out into uh, community uh, newspapers around the state to uh, participate in some of the journalism they are producing. Uh, have you... Uh, have you, uh, uh, Valentina, been able to uh, to do that? Could you clarify your question? Sure, sure. it was a little, a little convoluted. Sorry about that. Yeah. Have you been able to get out and work for any of the any of the uh, newspapers around Vermont uh, as part of as part of the uh, community news service program? Um, sure. So briefly, this um, this map that I made and the article that's along with it was actually my first involvement with the community news service. And mm-hmm. since then, I've, I've done um, WCIX interviews and other local newspapers around Vermont have published that data. Um, but this has been just my my first little stint in journalism, I would say. Um, yeah, I see. I, huh. I also, like, my, yeah, my involvement was more because of my interest in the election and using this data than... I didn't come into it looking to do journalism, but that sort of happened. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. now that you've gotten a, gotten a taste, do you think you might uh, pursue a career in journalism down the road? Um, potentially, yeah. I've definitely been considering it recently. It's very exciting, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Especially now with, um, you know, people being removed from their local news and questioning whether or not sources they have are, you know, reliable, um, which I think everyone should be doing. I think journalism could be something interesting to pursue. Ryan, what about you? Have you had experience working for, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know, the Shelburne News or the Waterbury Roundabout or any of these other publications? <clears throat> um, no, this is definitely my first uh, pretty serious interaction with, with news media outlets. Uh, prior to this, I was just a consumer uh, reading the newspaper, whether that was VT Digger, VTR News Updates, stuff like that. I used to follow the, the Milton Independent pretty frequently <laughs> in my town, but... And, and uh, let me just ask quickly, because we're almost out of time, do you, do you think uh, this might uh, send you off on a career in journalism? Um, I'm probably not. I don't think I've uh, written too much journalistic pieces quite yet. Um, it has yeah. been super fascinating to, to see the process of how this actually goes down, and I've learned a lot. Yep. But I, I certainly find more interest in the policy side of all of this uh, data that we've been pouring through. All right. Well, Ryan Joseph and uh, Valentina Chohansky, thank the two of you very much for joining me this morning, the community news service at UVM. Thanks, thanks, folks, for spending the time. That's about it for today's edition of the new of the uh, Dave Graham Show here on WDEV FM and AM. Stay tuned now for news conference with Governor Phil Scott and other top state officials as they uh, provide another update on the uh, COVID-19 crisis and the state's response. Have a good afternoon, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning.